We thank you, our Father, for our brothers and sisters in past centuries who you raised up and gave clarity of vision and boldness of heart. They saw what your word plainly taught. They humbled themselves. They embraced it. Then they stood up and proclaimed it loud and clear. Many of them, in fact, died for it. Our liberty today was bought by their boldness and blood in your good pleasure. Grant us today to hear and see your word clearly ourselves. Humble ourselves before your word. Then rise to proclaim it loud and clear and everywhere. Because the need today is no less dire and the opportunity no less ripe than it was in the day of the reformers, in the day of your great revival. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen in this mini-series on faith, saving faith is all about one thing. Saving faith is all about the Word of God. By His Word, God reveals Himself to us. He makes His heart, His mind, His counsel known to us. By His Word, He reaches out to us. It's by His Word that we know Him. And as language has the authority of the speaker, God's Word comes to us with all the authority of God and all the obligation that comes from that authority. We're obliged to hear His Word and to believe in His Word. We've seen that believing involves all of us. It involves our heart, mind, will, soul, strength. Uh, We must, with mind and with will, uh, recognize the truths of God's Word. We must realize that they are, in fact, true. And we must rest on their truth, depending on Christ alone to save us, looking to Christ alone to be our Lord. It involves all our inner life. And we've also seen, particularly last week, that overarching these elements of faith is the need to submit to God's Word. We don't listen to God's Word as peers. We don't listen to God's Word as its judges. We listen as creatures, servants, slaves. We listen submissively. Uh, We must as Jesus says, deny ourselves. We must pick up our cross. We must follow Jesus. We've got to burn all of our bridges of, of self-righteousness, imagined self-righteousness, of imagined self-reliance, of self-rule, and submit to God's Word. Now, as I suggested last week, somebody who understands what the Bible teaches about man and about sin would have been saying all along there is a huge, huge problem with that. If that's what faith is, and it is, then it's impossible for us to produce. It is impossible for us to submit to God's Word. How can I say that? Because the Bible shows it. And we'll see this in an incident uh, that the uh, Apostle John brings before us in John chapter 2 and chapter 3. If I were to ask you what John chapter 3 is about, you might say it's about Nicodemus, it's about regeneration. Well, and it's exactly about what we've been talking about. Let me show you by highlighting the five impossibilities that we see in John chapter 3, Roman numeral 1. And I call it five impossibilities because six times in that passage we uh, come up on the Greek word dynamai, which is usually translated can, I can or I can't, but it means I have the power to, it's possible for me. Uh, I, I have the ability to do this, or, or in the third person, 
it is possible. It, it, it can be done. Uh, there is the possibility or the power for that to happen. This occurs six times in this passage in five impossibilities. So let's look at the first impossibility together, and it'll become very clear to you as we go. Letter A, we first see that it is impossible for any man to produce such signs as Jesus was doing. Jesus was doing signs that were manifestly divine works. Turning the water into wine was not a trick. That was an act of creation. And other signs of resurrection and healing and the control of nature, these things were such signs that no man could produce. That is to say, human nature does not have in it to do signs like that. So, uh, this is in verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can. It is not possible for anyone. No one has the ability to do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this is one of those cases where you know the Bible was numbered centuries after it was written, and it probably would have been better to begin chapter 3 back in chapter 2, verse 23, because that starts this story. It's the necessary background. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. I've printed out the... um, LSB for you, and you see I've underlined the six occurrences of that verb dunamai uh, to highlight them, but we'll see them as we go through it. So the background is in 2.23.25, and we see in, that, in those verses that the signs that Jesus uh, was doing was gaining attention from the Jews. It, it, was, it was causing a stir. Verse 23, we read, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. Now, this sounds like saving faith. The language is the normal language for describing saving faith, except for what John immediately says, except for the immediate context. Shows it to be something short of saving faith. First of all, note, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Verse 24, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Whatever they said, whatever they did, Jesus saw through to their heart. Any professed faith, Jesus saw through to the reality of it. So he knew their hearts and he knew the defect in their professed faith. And what was the defect in their professed faith? It was sign faith. Let's look a little more closely at verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. Now, I would probably translate that many believed in his name as they were observing the signs which he was doing. That is to say, as long as he was doing signs, they were believing. That is to say, their faith was about his miracles. That attracted them. The signs but not what the sign signified. They didn't follow the sign to full faith in Jesus. It was coterminous, if you will, with the faith, with the signs. When the sign started, the faith started, and if the sign stopped, the faith stopped, and they wanted more signs. So Jesus saw this defect, that it did not go deep enough, it did not go far enough, and so he didn't entrust himself. Now there's a word play, I'll come back to this. In verse 24, He was not entrusting himself. In Greek, that's the simple word for believe. It's an unusual word, but it's a word play. They were believing on him in a way, but he wasn't believing on them. 
He wasn't believing himself to them. Remember, the Greek word for believe, faith, trust, same word. We would just use three different English words to translate the same verb, pistuo. It means to believe. It means to have faith. It means to trust. So they were professing trust, but he wasn't trusting himself to them because he saw that they did not have saving faith. Now that background is necessary to understand what we read in chapter 3. So let's come to the first, to the foreground. And John brings to our attention a man just of the sort he just described. This was just the sort of person he'd been talking about. First, notice verses 25 and, and 3, 1, which is to say the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3. Tell me what word you hear three times in these two verses. And he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew it was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. What word do you hear three times? Man. So he knew what was in man. For instance, take this man. This is a man to give us an example of exactly what I'm talking about. This man of the Pharisees. He's a member of that group. How do you see that? Again, there's another connection. It would be easier to see if chapter 3 started a few verses earlier. But look at 2.23. Many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. Then look at chapter 3, verse 2. What does Nicodemus say? Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for what? No one can do these signs that you do. They believed in him as they observed the signs which he was doing. No one can do these signs that you were doing. So he was exactly a member of this category of person. He had a sort of faith, but it was about Jesus' signs. No one can do these signs except God be with him. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Nicodemus says to Jesus, it's impossible for signs like this to come from a mere human being. He speaks respectfully, but as a peer. I think he hoped to have a peer conversation with Jesus. Uh, and he's confident about what he knows. He comes to Jesus boasting of what he knows. We, in fact, we, the, the, the class of which he's a member, we know that no one can do these signs except God be with him. But, but notice how Jesus turns the table. Nicodemus says to Jesus, oh, we know it's impossible to do these, for a man to do these signs apart from God. And Jesus says, let me tell you about something you don't know about that is impossible for a man to do. Now, we know it's impossible to do these signs unless it's a work of God. And Jesus says, let me tell you what you don't know. You don't know that there's something else that's impossible to come from a man apart from a work of God. And so, what is it that Jesus talks about? Look at uh, letter B. Second impossibility. It is impossible for any man to see God's kingdom without new birth. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, this is unexampled. Nobody said truly, truly. Jesus is double underlining what he's saying. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's our word, our verb, dunamai. It is impossible for him to see. He doesn't have the ability to see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. So, this is impossibility on impossibility. Nicodemus says it is impossible for miracles to spring from human nature. And Jesus says it is impossible for spiritual life to spring from human nature. Both must be a work of God alone, equally. So 
looking more closely, without new birth, it is impossible to see the kingdom. Now, what is new birth? He says to be born anothen is the, is the Greek word. You could translate it again. You could also translate it from above. Now, obviously, if a, a person who exists is born from above, well, he's born again. But again is probably not the best word, although it's the one we commonly use, because it's not a, re- it's not a repetition of the first verse. Ver- sorry, back up. It's not a repetition of the first birth. It's not doing the first birth again. It's a new birth. Not like the first birth, flesh gives birth to flesh, but a new birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's being born from above, yes, it's being born anew. And this is an entirely divine miracle of transformation. That's what new birth is. It's, it's not a, just a new start. It's not a, something that we do in ourselves. It's actually a new creation. It's a new person. It's a new heart. The heart of stone is removed. A heart is put in that loves God, that can keep God's laws. It's a new life. Uh, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, Bishop J.C. Ryle, said it very well. He said, the change which our Lord here de- declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one. It is not merely reformation or amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life. It is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the planting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. It is the calling into existence of a new creation with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. And the better you know the Bible, the more you realize that everything he said there is just a rewording of what Scripture says about the new birth. It is a miracle. It's an act of God. So that's about new birth. Now, what about seeing? What is Jesus saying when he says that it's impossible to see the kingdom? Well, when he says it's impossible to see it, he's saying it's impossible to experience it. It's, it's impossible to experience the, new ki- the kingdom of God now as a citizen of it. It will be impossible to experience it when it comes as a citizen of it. Uh, just the end of the chapter, if you were able to drop your eyes down to John 3.36, you see the word used that way. The one who believes in the Son has life eternal. But the one who disobeys the Son, what does he say? Will not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, it doesn't simply mean he won't see life, but he means he won't experience life. Life won't be his. And so Jesus, similarly here, is not saying merely that he won't be able to eyeball the kingdom of God, but he's saying he won't know it. He won't experience it. He won't be a partaker of it. And, and what does it mean to experience the kingdom of God? If you read John 3 all, all uh, together, you'll see a back and forth of the kingdom of God and having eternal life. To, to be in the kingdom of God is to have eternal life. Eternal life is the life of the coming kingdom. It's, it's a different kind of life that we're not born possessing. It must be given to us. It must be created in us. And so uh, to, be a, to experience the kingdom is to have eternal life. I'm not saying that there's the same thing, but I'm saying that they're wrapped up in each other. They're inseparable things. Um, and what does having, uh, being born again then have to do with faith? Well, how do you have eternal life? I think everybody knows one verse that answers that question. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. So how do you have everlasting life? Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So what does regeneration have to do with faith? They're inseparable. To have faith is to be born again. You can't have saving faith without being born born again, and the born-again person will exercise saving faith. Notice, now like I said, if I were to ask most people what's John 3 about, they'd say it's about being born again. True enough. But notice how John frames the section. Look at 2.23 again. Please point your eyes at those verses. John 2.23. Now he says, when he was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover, many believed in his name, but Jesus was not believing himself to them. He uses the, the word twice, pistuo, trusting or entrusting, believing. This, the verb is used twice. Now look at, towards the end of this section in John 3. John 3.12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This whole section about being a born, born again is framed by two uses of the word to believe. So believing and being born again, they're wrapped up in each other. They're inseparable from each other. So there are some who have faith, but it's not saving faith because they're not born again. And the only way you can have saving faith is by being born again. Being born anew. Regeneration is necessary to saving faith. Now, if there were some way of having saving faith without first being born anew, then Jesus was wrong, I speak as a fool, when he said that you've got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Well, if you need to have faith before you're born again, then, you, then you're in the kingdom of God before you're born again. And Jesus says, can't be done. Because I, I believe and I have eternal life. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And Jesus says regeneration must precede that. New birth must precede that. That's what Jesus says. It's impossible to see the kingdom of God without having been born anew. That's the second impossibility. Now the third impossibility, Nicodemus unwittingly underscores, it is impossible for any man to make himself born anew. It's impossible for any man to make himself born anew. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That word can twice, there's our verb dunamai. How is it possible for a man to be born when he's old? Is it possible for him to enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So first of all, the kind of funny thing here is that poor Nicodemus unwittingly illustrates Jesus' point. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus says, you know, without being born again, you, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, in effect, says, well, I don't see that at all. Yeah, that's what I just said. That's why you don't see it. Because you're not born again. That's what you must be born again. You don't see it. But notice the way Nicodemus naturally responds. Jesus says you've got to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, I mean, Nicodemus is natural first response is, well, obviously you're telling me something that I need to do. I mean, obviously you're saying that there's something I need to do. There's something that's in my power and in my ability to do that I've got to do in order to have this blessing. So indeed, I know you're a teacher from God. So we Pharisees, we look at the law as telling us how to work God's favor 
on us, the, the sorts of things we need to do to get God to look on us with favor and love us and accept us. And so you, this new teacher, I'm sure you're telling me a, a new and better way, perhaps, uh, that I can make myself, but I don't understand it, because how can I do this? I'm trying to think, how can I do this? You want me to be born again? Surely you're not telling me to climb back into my mother's womb and be born, are you? But, but he can't conceive that Jesus is telling him anything other than something that he needs to do, that's in his power and his ability to do. Now, let me surprise you, um, I hope, with uh, something perhaps you've never thought about. There are a great many evangelicals who listening to that conversation would, would help Jesus by stepping in and saying, oh no, no, obviously, that's, that's not what you do to be born again. You don't climb into your mother's womb to be born again. So let me tell you what you need to do to be born again. Do you see that? Uh, am I making this up? Oh, well, not at all. I mean, I, I certainly, I thought this way myself as a younger Christian. Uh, Billy Graham is, is one example of many. He wrote a whole book titled How to Be Born Again. And, you know, as I've said before, I thought that should be an awfully short book because you open it up and it should say you can't. <laughs> it's not in your power. The end, you know, but you want to find <laughs> anyway. But here's something that he, he wrote um, that I found from the Billy Graham website talking about new birth. He says... We come by simple childlike faith and we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, amen. When we do, we're born again. Oh, so that's what I do to be born again. I come and out of my lost, dead, unsaved heart, I somehow find it in me to believe savingly and then I'm born again as, as God's response to my putting the right coin in the right slot and pulling the right arm, then I'm born again. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ says we must be born again. Amen. How do we become born again? Good question. One, by repenting of sin, he says. That means we're willing to change our way of life. So a lost, unsaved, God-hating person I become, I make myself willing to change my life. We say to God, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. It's simple and childlike. That's the first thing we do. Second thing we do is by faith we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Master and Savior. We, unregenerate, dead, God-hating sinners, we are willing to follow him in a new life of obedience in which the Holy Spirit helps us as we read the Bible and pray and witness. These are the things we do to get ourselves born again. Now I wonder how many people uh, would agree with him. Uh, would hear Billy Graham say, yes, that's what we do to be born again. But you see, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is very, very different. And, and for years this just puzzled me because I, I just, I, I didn't think Jesus was saying it very clearly. But of course I came to see what we always come to see. Oh, he said it very clearly. It just didn't fit the system that I had been holding at the time. So it's impossible to see the kingdom of God without new birth. It's impossible to get oneself born again. Nicodemus is right about that. There's nothing I can do to make this happen. But letter D, it's impossible for a man to enter God's kingdom without new birth. Now verses 5 through 8, Jesus answered, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter, it is not possible for him to enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Or you could equally translate that, the spirit breathes where he wishes. And you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the spirit. 
Now, let's see here what we learn about God's kingdom. And we learn something very brief about God's kingdom. We're not in it unless we enter it. This is a very important point. Many people like to say there's one God and we're all brothers. This is not biblical teaching. Uh, We're not born in God's kingdom. We are born out of God's kingdom. That's why Jesus has to talk about entering God's kingdom. If I need to enter God's kingdom, well then where am I? Not in it. (laughs) I'm not in it. So that's a very important thing to notice. In fact, for me, for you, to enter God's kingdom requires a radical change that Jesus is saying is beyond our power to make. But it requires a radical, supernatural change. Not not an improvement of my manners, my habits, my morals, not more self-will, but a miracle, a supernatural work of God. Secondly, what we learn about entry into God's kingdom, new birth is conditioned on entry, not vice versa. So in other words, To enter it, I must be born again, not when I enter it, then I'll be born again. I won't enter it unless I've been born again. And he says, born of water in the Spirit. I'm not teaching this passage in detail, but I, I do want to remind you, when he says water in the Spirit, he's alluding to Ezekiel 36, which prophesies about this aspect of the new covenant, that God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from your idols. Well, is there any water on earth that will clean people from idols? Any literal water? Even Ozarka? No. Even, even water from Pedernales River? No, no. That won't do that. Mm-mm. No, he's speaking of his cleansing, of his spiritual cleansing. Water in the Spirit is kind of saying with two words one thing, that the Holy Spirit cleanses us. Paul says it in Titus 3, the washing of regeneration. Regeneration itself washes, not the waters of baptism. Baptism is a picture of that spiritual act. And so that's what he's talking about. Water and the Spirit. It's the, this, the cleansing of God's worth, work, the cleansing by God's Spirit in the new birth. But now let's talk about other things we learn about the new birth thirdly. It can arise only from God's Spirit and not man's flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus says, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, as John uses the word flesh, it simply means our human estate. But what is the fact of the human estate of every man of flesh except for one? The word took on flesh, and in taking on the flesh, did he take on sin? No, he did not. He did not become a sinner when he became a human being. But for everyone else in the flesh, does being in the flesh involve sin? Yes, that's why we need the word to become flesh. For all of us, to be in the flesh means to be in sin and under sin. It means, Ephesians 2.1, that we're dead. That, that's what it means. Now, there are a host of other verses that spell out more about how, how desperate our situation is apart from Christ. But you could just do that one. I mean, how, how bad off does it get beyond dead, you know? Well, how's the patient? Well, he's dead, but we're holding out hope. What? <laughs> of what? If he's dead, then next chapter. I mean... That's it. We're dead. We're dead. What word could Paul possibly have used to describe an utterly helpless, hopeless in ourselves condition? We're dead. And our default setting is rebellion against God's word. Romans 8, verses 5 through 7. Romans 8, 5 through 7. For those who are according to the flesh, and that's every last person outside of Christ, 
And it's just nonsense to think, well, it's, yeah, th- that's the hard-hearted ones. Yeah, that's right, which is 100%. And until God moves. Well, that's the ones who really, really are, hate God. Yes, that's correct. 100%. Until God moves. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile, literally, he says hostility, it's the essence of hatred. Hostility. It is hostility toward God. Listen, for it does not subject itself. It doesn't subordinate itself to the law of God. And listen, for it is not even able to do so. And there's our verb, dunamai. It's not even possible for it to do it. It does not have that ability resonant in it. Any more than a human being has the ability to produce divine works and signs, does a fleshly person outside of Christ have the ability to produce submission to God's word. Saving faith, however, involves submission. But it's our nature to rebel. You say, what about free will? Yes, that's, that's free will. We are free to rebel against God's word. The will, remember, is a function of the nature. It's a function of the heart. And what has Paul just told us, it is our nature. To hate God, to rebel against his word, to be dead. So I freely hate God. I freely reject his word. I do exactly what my heart wants to do. It's not in me to believe savingly on God's word as I am naturally. That's what we learn about the new birth. Flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. Secondly, it is not fathomable or controllable. He, Jesus says that you, you hear the wind blowing, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. You, you don't control it. You can't explain it. You know it does what it does, but it's not under your control. It's not, you don't blow the wind. <laughs> you, you observe it, but you can't explain it. You can't fully understand it. But he says, letter C, it is observable in its effects. Yeah, you can't know everything about the wind, but you can tell when it's there, can't you? This week, did you all, all your phones go off, give you a tornado warning? That's always exciting. It's most exciting the first time it happens, and then I remember during Harvey, you know, it happened every couple of minutes. <laughs> but... Um, uh, so this week I'm up in my office minding my own business and I get this tornado warning which I wasn't really expecting. So I came downstairs and I looked at the parking lot. <laughs> there wasn't a breath of air, you know, tornado, I thought, tornado. You know, the leaves were not even moving really. And then like two minutes later, as if someone had pulled a lever, well, which I guess someone did. It's all craziness. It's all nuts. The, it rain is blowing sideways and going round and round, and it's very noisy and very active. Now, could I tell when the wind came? How? I saw what it does, but I couldn't explain it, and I certainly don't control it. I would have turned it off sooner, I think, if I could control it. But, um, but it did what it did, and so Jesus is likening this to the work of the Spirit. We we can't explain it completely. We certainly don't control it, but we can tell when he moves. How can we tell? How can we tell when a person's born again? Infallibly, by he'll believe in Jesus Christ. He will repent and believe in the gospel. Don't, don't imagine that we're to think of pe- born-again people wandering around in paganism and false teaching and, or, or not knowing Jesus, but they're secretly born again. No, the fruit, the way you tell that the Spirit of God has moved is the person comes to saving faith. You can see the effects 
So this is, this is important truth we learn about this new birth. It's impossible for a man to enter God's kingdom without the new birth, and the new birth is a work of the Spirit of God. It's a work that we cannot generate from within ourselves. It must be as truly a miraculous work of God as Jesus' signs were. Do you see? Somebody say yes. Good. Somebody say fantastic. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. And then letter E, our fifth impossibility. It is impossible for the unregenerate to grasp spiritual truth. It is impossible for the unregenerate to grasp spiritual truth. I say grasp advisedly. Not that they can't possibly write a paper about it or use words that describe it, but they themselves do not grasp it. We see that in Nicodemus, who by all accounts is a a fine man by the standards of that society. He was a ruler of the Jews. He he was on the Sanhedrin, the the ruling authority in the area. He was a Pharisee, the most uh, respected class of person in Jewish society. And he does reappear later and appears at that point genuinely, genuinely to be a believer. But at this point, Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? And there's our last use of the verb. How is it possible? I can't imagine the possibility of what you're talking about. I, I just, <sighs> head explode, you know? I, 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 my whole life I'm conditioned to being told what I need to do to earn the favor of God, to secure the favor of God, to have God on my side. This is my whole life, and this is my teaching. And you're telling me something I can't make happen that's not in my power to generate. You're telling me something that God must do. It has to be a work of the Spirit of God. How is it possible? And Jesus' response is to say, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That's kind of a bite right there. Nicodemus comes saying, well, we know, we know. And Jesus says, you don't know this. You think you know that, but you don't know this? This is basic he says, in effect, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of things, uh, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, and you do not accept our witness. You see, he speaks to him as an unbeliever, and even though he's been impressed by the signs. You do not receive our witness. Pardon me. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is, regeneration is all about faith because regeneration is necessary to faith. Without regeneration, there can be no saving faith. And no one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So I've come down from heaven. I'm telling you heaven's truth, and you're baffled by it. And he illustrates here that fine as a man as he was, diligent as a student as he was, moral as he was, respected as he was, he still just did not get this. He just did not grasp this. You want to see the best commentary on this, turn to 1 Corinthians 2.14. There are many, but 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains what's going on here and what this is all impressing on us. Now, if if I can ask you to find it and then look up for a moment, just to set the the context for you, Paul has been talking about the experience of and his attitude towards speaking and preaching at Corinth where people really 
looked for orators. They looked for people who were professional rhetoricians. They spoke well. They, they were philosophical. They, they believed themselves to, you know, to require that sort of high fashion of speaking and so forth. And Paul says, yeah, well, that's exactly what I decided I wouldn't do. Because the wisdom of man does not uh, equal the knowledge of God. It does not result in the knowledge of God. In fact, he says, the wisdom of man judges God a fool and God's words folly. Because to the wisdom of the world, there's nothing more ridiculous than a crucified Savior. And that's exactly what we preach. That's the heart of our preaching. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ, crucified. So why is it that all these wise philosophical people just find that to be such knowledge, such nonsense, such folly? Well, he explains it in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, which I will paraphrase to, to mean, and this is what he means, the unregenerate person, the person who has not been born anew. The unregenerate person is the natural person, the soulish person, does not accept, and there's a nuance to the verb there saying, he does not welcome, he does not grasp, he doesn't embrace the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Now that's exactly how they look to him. Why do they look that way? Because they're folly? No. But if I wear a pair of glasses that are dyed red, how does everything look to me? Red. Except red, ironically. But <laughs> everything else looks red. Red looks white. But I digress. Is he wearing glasses? Yes, he is. Every lost man is wearing glasses that distort God's world. Sin distorts the way we see things. And so he looks on the very essence of wisdom, which is the counsel of God and his saving plan. He looks at that, and through the dye of his glasses, it is just the stupidest thing he's ever heard. So you're telling me, after I've come from all, you know, Plato's works and Aristotle and Socrates and all these grand uh, uh, expostulations and, and meditations, and you're telling me that really the solution to everything that's wrong with man is... Jesus hanging on a cross? Well, yes. In fact, I'm, I'm exactly telling you that. <laughs> well, friend, you know you're a fine person, and I, and I do love you, but that is just the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I can't believe that came out of your mouth. Well, is he lying? Nope. It is just the stupidest thing he's ever heard. Why? Because he's, he's not born again. And because the unregenerate man cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Or as Paul puts it, he doesn't welcome them because they're foolish to him. They're folly. And he's not able to understand them. Oh, there's our word again. There's dunamai again. It's not possible for him. He lacks the power. It's not in him. His will is free to do what he wants to do. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. And he never will if God doesn't sovereignly move on his heart not able to know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned, but what's he? He's flesh. What does Jesus say? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he can't. So here are a pair of truths that all this hits us over the head with. Conversion involves every part of a man, but conversion is not caused by any part of a man. 
Conversion involves every part of what I am as a human being, but it is not produced by anything in me. Any more than Jesus' signs just came from him as a human individual. So this is, this is the sort of the closing of it. It's, it's where it starts and finishes in a way. It's where Jesus takes this conversation. Nicodemus says, well, we know you're sent from God because no person could just produce signs like this unless God was with him. And Jesus says, I want to talk with you about something even more urgent, and that is that you don't have it within you to produce spiritual life. As surely as my signs require the miraculous intervention of God, spiritual life requires the, inter, the miraculous intervention of God. So, new birth affects all of me, but it is affected by none of me. So how does it happen? From above. Jesus says, anew, born from above. And if, if somebody were to still say, you know, I still don't see how I, I'm going to do this. <laughs> exactly. He said, that's exact. We don't. It is a work of God. It is a miraculous, transforming, creative work of God. So, all these five impossibilities boil down to one impossibility to the subject that we're talking about, which has been saving faith. We've been talking about saving faith. This section is about saving faith. And they all boil down to the fact that uh, an individual, apart from a miraculous work of God, can no more produce saving faith than he can produce divine signs. And yet, you say, I observe that some people do have saving faith. And you've just said it's not possible for us to produce. Yes, I did say it's impossible for us to produce it. I don't say it's impossible for us to experience it. The issue is, how does that happen? How is it that there are people who do have saving faith if, as the Bible plainly teaches, nobody can of himself generate saving faith? So here we come to God's solution. And that is that salvation is entirely monergistic. Sorry, but it's really a a word worth knowing, and I'll I'll write you a letter about it tomorrow, Lord willing. Monergistic, that is M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. What does that mean? And I tell you, it's the opposite of synergistic. There, are we all clear? Synergistic means it's something that we do together. It's you got a part, I got a part. It's 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 a project we share. Monergistic is just you do it or just I do it. Salvation is monergistic, meaning what simply? Just God does it. And everything I do is an effect of God's cause. I don't help him, I don't participate. The only thing I bring to my salvation is the sin from which I need to be saved and the guilt and the death from which I need to be delivered and resurrected. So let's look at this from three angles. I want to look at it generally. First, generally. Generally, letter A, Jonah 2.9b says very plainly, salvation belongs to Yahweh. And how many Christians would say amen to that and then go on to explain what parts of salvation belong to us? But the prophet says salvation belongs to Yahweh. I'm sure glad glad God helped me get out of this whale. Well, of course, it wasn't a whale as far as we know, but God didn't help him get out of it at all. God caused him to get out of it. God saved him. And so generally, indeed, salvation belongs to Yahweh. 
What does Matthew 1.21 say? How does the angel explain why Jesus needs to be named Yeshua? Salvation. Why name him Yeshua? Why not name him Bobby? Or Dan? No, name him Yeshua, salvation. What does he say? Because he himself will save his people from their sins. He will do this. He will not help them do it. He will not merely offer them the opportunity. If he helped them, they would all perish. If he offered them the opportunity, what did we just see? They'd all say, no thank you. That's the stupidest offer I've ever heard. In all the insincerity, that is the dumbest offer I've ever heard. Why would I ever want that? No, he came to save his people from their sins. And salvation means so much more than just God doing his part once we've done ours. It means God saving. God does the whole part. 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 31. Turn there with me, please. Maybe you're still at 1 Corinthians 2 in your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. And... You know, in fact, I'll back up to 26 just to kind of get the feel here. He's talking about how everybody thinks the cross is folly except for the the called, the elect. Verse 26, consider your calling, brother. Not many were wise or powerful were called. But verse 27, God elected, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God elected what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God elected what is low and despised in the world and the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And what is the upshot of this? That no human being might boast in the presence of God. So sadly, so many Christians work so hard to, to, to save us one thing we can boast for, one thing that's our part, that without us doing that, God couldn't save us. And yet Paul says, we've got nothing to boast for. If, what do you do with a math book? You know, If you've got the teacher's guide and you come up with something, you look in the teacher's guide and it's the wrong answer. What do you do? Do you correct the teacher's guide? No, you, you figure, I did something wrong. But no, many Christians actually, when they come to something like this, they say, there's got to be something wrong with this because I know it can't be what it seems to be saying. But it is. No being, human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, the pregnant little tight phrase, literally out from him, issuing from him, originated in him, are you in Christ Jesus? But why am I in Christ Jesus? If I say, well, ultimately I'm in Christ Jesus because I, uh, well, then you're different from the teacher's guide. Because the teacher's guide says the only reason you're in Jesus Christ comes from God. And anything you did comes from God also. You decided, you repented, you believed, praise the Lord. You did that from God. That was a work of God. Of him, you were in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And he just has to say it one more time. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, period, close quote. Amen? Amen. And so we come back to the verse we started the, the service with. Service starts at 1045. I hope you were here to hear that together as we began our worship together. What verse started our worship? 1 Timothy 1.15 Faithful is the saving, saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to offer salvation to sinners. Was that what we read? Or to make sinners savable. Is that what we read? No, he says to save sinners. 
Are you saying I don't need to believe or repent? Oh, no, I need to do that, but that's what happens when he saves me. It's what he works in me. It's part of his saving me. It's part of his saving work so that all the glory goes to God. So generally, generally, all of this must come from God for all the glory to go to God, for all the glory to be God's glory. Specifically to what we're talking about, John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. I think that's probably fairly familiar to you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, who were begotten, not of blood, you don't inherit it, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Someone doesn't decide it for you, and you don't decide it, you don't cause it by your own will yourself but of God. It comes from God. We're born of God. This new birth is an act of God. And what I do, I do as a result of his act. His act is not a result of what I do. Let me say that again. What I do in in salvation and conversion, I do as a result of the work of God. The work of God is not a result of my act. Amen? Amen. Amen. And turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. I wrote an isolation edification on that, and I, I mean to resend it to you tomorrow. So many of you weren't here at that time. So do be on the mailing list. But 1 John 5, 1. Look at, and notice the tenses very closely. And I'm going to ask you a question. There will be a quiz. Everyone who believes that... G- Let me re-inflect that. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Which comes first, my believing or my being born of God? Being born of God. Everyone who now presently believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ has been born. In other words, how do I know the wind blew? Because I see the trees shaking. How do I know the Spirit has regenerated? Because I see a believer. Everyone who believes in... Now, you say, well, I'm, I'm not so convinced of that. Well, I think there's another verse very similar to that in 1 John. Everyone who loves has been born of God. Now, does anyone think that the way to be born again is to become a loving person? I'm pretty sure most evangelicals say, oh, that's heresy. I know that one. That's heresy. Yes, it is. But this says just as clearly, if you believe... You've been born of God. Your faith is an effect of the cause of regeneration. So we've seen it generally. We've seen it specifically. And finally, let's see it emphatically. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, although I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So I'm looking at the Greek text here. And I remind you that in Ephesians 2, what's the first thing he says in the chapter? and you being dead in trespasses and sins. And then he says, God raised you up and made you alive. So I'm dead, and then God made me alive. All right, now fast forward to these better-known verses. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that none might boast. Now, we went through the the book of Ephesians here at Copperfield Church some years ago, Copperfield Bible Church, pardon me, Copperfield Bible Church, uh, several years ago, and um, 
When we studied this, I showed you how, how the Greek text makes it impossible to say that the gift of God is, is uh, faith or salvation or grace. All of those are feminine, and, and this is neuter. So what's he saying is the, is the gift of God. The whole, park, the whole package and every part of it. It's not like, okay, well, grace is the gift of God and salvation is the gift of God, but faith, that's all me. That's what I do. That's my part. That's all me. God couldn't save me if I didn't do my part. No, Paul's saying the whole package and every part of the package, that's a gift of God. Grace is, amen, salvation, amen, and that faith by which you're saved, that's a gift from God too. And so many Christians just, just chained to this idea of trying to get something for man in here, work so hard to try to disprove and say, oh, no, no, it's only grace that's the gift or it's only salvation that's the gift. And after all that work, verse 10 comes along and just destroys the whole thing beyond any questions of Greek grammar or anything. Verse 10, what does it say? For, I'm going to translate it fairly literally, for his doing are we, his making are we, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we might walk in them. Now, how much did I have to do with making myself? Let's see, zero, carry the zero, take away the zero, times zero equals Zero. And what did I have to do with creating myself? Same math. Zero. We have been created in Christ Jesus. We are made in Christ Jesus. Well, except for, no, except for nothing, he says we. The whole of what we are in Christ is a creation. The whole of what we are in Christ is the doing of God. So whatever little question we might try to do with dancing with Greek in verse 9, verse 10 just destroys by saying, well, what we are, we are by God, like he says in 1 Corinthians, like the whole Bible says in a hundred different ways. We are the doing of God. We are the work of God. If we're in Christ, it's because of God's doing and because of God's work. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Self-made man, God-made saint, God-made son, God-made servant. Only by affirming what the Scripture teaches are we able to say, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory and really mean it. Now, in, in closing this, I, I want to say a word to someone who perhaps came in and you're, you're not a Christian or you haven't been taught a whole lot of the Bible and you found this, you found this overwhelming, like trying to drink out of a... Of a, of a fire hose, and perhaps you're just really confused by it, and you say, I don't, you know, this is all very confusing to me, and this is all very new to me, it's, it's all very difficult for me to grasp, but the parts that I think I understand, <laughs> they just, they make me feel helpless, they make me feel like I'm just completely at the mercy of God, you know, I would rather you give me five things to do to have a better life, and I tell you, you can go to just about any church and find five things to do to have a better life. And I'd rather you tell me that. Because I feel like I'm just at the mercy of God. And you've left me nowhere to go to do things for myself. To improve or save myself. Well, in response to that, I would say, Amen. You're exactly where you need to be. And you're exactly where we all really are. Which is that we are at the mercy of God. And this is our great error. And this is the great error that too many Christians bring into their Christian life. The inner 
assurance that there must be some part of my relationship with God that I control, that's in my hands to make or not make. But Scripture doesn't teach it that way. Scripture doesn't teach the Gospel that way. The fact is we are, every one of us, you, me, in ourselves we're sinners, we're condemned, we're guilty before God. We are under the judgment of God. We're under the wrath of God. And we are entirely at God's mercy. Whether we draw another breath or not, we are entirely at God's mercy. So what can you do confronted with this? There's just one option open to you, and that is to throw yourself on God's mercy. To throw yourself on God's mercy in Jesus Christ. To turn from your doing and your thinking and yourself and throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ calls sinners to come to Him. Come to Him. Jesus Christ calls sinners to believe in Him. Believe in Him. Jesus Christ calls sinners to call on His name. Call on His name. And if you do, you will find two things to be absolutely true. Not only two, but you will find these two things to be absolutely true. He absolutely will receive you, forgive you, make you your own, his own, and you will find that every bit of what you just did was the work of God, was the sovereign, free, miraculous, glorious work of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear and piercing teaching of Scripture. We thank you for uh, your Son who reveals the depths of your wisdom to us. And Father, we just pray for the work of the Spirit of God. I pray for every person who knows you here, who genuinely has believed that the effect of this bath in Scripture will be to lead us all to be able to say soli Deo Gloria with all our hearts and realize that every bit of the glory for our salvation is yours. And if we come to heaven and find that there's a crown in our head, we will unhesitantly take it off and throw it at your feet because all of the glory is yours. For any Christian struggling or fighting, we pray that you will bring submission to your word and bowing of the knee before the absolute sovereignty of the free, saving God. And for anyone who's come in not knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, we pray that the Spirit will blow and we would pray that the Spirit would breathe life into that heart. Open those eyes, lead that person to see how much he, how much she, needs the Lord Jesus, and that he, she, will come running to him for salvation, to him alone who saves from sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.